Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. Again, if you uh, are using a Bible that's provided in the rack in front of your chair, we're going to be on page 951 or 52 towards the back of your Bible. And we took a break for Easter Sunday, uh, but we are back in our series in 1 Corinthians, back to basics. I think both of you as a collective group and myself, I think we would both quite easily say this morning that we live in a world that places a lot of value on one's own thoughts, opinions, viewpoints of truth, viewpoints of what is reality. Would you agree to that? Basically, if you don't conform to the cultural system's way of thinking, then quite often, in our day and age, you can easily be accused of, uh, you hear this quote, being on the wrong side of history. If you don't conform to the cultural system's way of thinking, uh, you can easily be accused of being naive or just simplistic. You're not in touch with the times. You hear that? You can easy, uh, if you don't conform to the cultural system's way of thinking, um, there's a tendency to see increased hostility or warnings of being put aside kind of to the outskirts of social society. There's not really a place at the table for you. Uh, there's the, the daily pressures of living uh, by faith and not by sight. And we kind of see increased uh, pressure to think towards the norm of society here in the United States of America. But in reality, this is nothing new. Um, believers all across the world um, have faced this for hundreds and even thousands of years. In fact, we, we see where uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries... Uh, maybe you've heard of the time period, the Enlightenment, where uh, mankind started to especially place a high value on not objective truth, but on man being their own determiner of truth, their own determiner of wisdom, that I can know what is real simply by my own senses, my own rationality, my own thinking. But this isn't something that somehow came upon the human race or came upon us culturally. We see this really from the very beginning of time. When, when Eve, it says she looked at the fruit, she saw that it was good, and she took it. She used her, her own reasoning, logic, wisdom, going against what God has declared. So what we see bubbling up in our society, what we see continuing to bubble up in the world, it's nothing new. It's been in existence since the Garden of Eden. And we also see it bubbling up in our text in 1 Corinthians. We've talked about how Paul already, just in, in the first chapter, continually goes back to what man says is 
wisdom and what God says is wisdom. And God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world, but it is actually his power revealed, his, his plan of redemption revealed, a crucified Messiah. In the world's eyes, why would you worship someone who was crucified? But yet God's ways are not our ways, the Bible has told us. You know, uh, going according to our own wisdom and our own rationale, even as Christians, isn't it something we have to daily fight against? Yet, over and over again, Paul tells us that that we can rest secure in the confidence and the certainty that only the wisdom of God can give us, both for life and for godliness. We have confidence and security that even though what God's word declares to us even though we follow a crucified yet risen Savior, and that appears to be foolishness to this world, we don't have to fret. We don't have to kind of put ourselves under the foolish judgments of of society. We have hope because the wisdom of God has been revealed to us. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. We're going to see at the end of chapter 2 in the coming weeks that this world, the natural man, doesn't have the Spirit of God within them to be able to comprehend what is truth. But if we're followers of Jesus, we do possess the Spirit of God within us. And we can find comfort in that. Uh, Even today, as as you're sitting here, are you even in a spirit of prayer as you're sitting here, as you were driving to church, as you were uh, preparing your hearts to receive God's word? Lord, would your spirit instruct my mind and my heart? We have the very Spirit of God within us. And in an age of uncertainty, we can have complete certainty on who is on the throne and whose plan is actually going to come to fruition. Do you have that kind of certainty today? You see, the, the, the main key theme of our entire series is this uh, summed up in this one sentence. It'll be on the screen for you. That we must cling to what truly matters. The only way to get back to basics is to, is to cling to that which truly matters and to cast off these other secondary things that have taken precedence over the basics. And what truly matters, what we are to cling to, we see from our text in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, we must cling to God's wisdom above the wisdom of this world. If we are going to navigate through our Christian life, through what society is telling us, through commercials, through TV shows, through all of these things, we have to cling 
to God's wisdom. We're going to see this morning, and we're going to see in, in the entirety of chapter 3, or chapter 2, I'm going to give you what we're going to be looking at in chapter 2. We're only going to be looking at one of these things this morning. But the title of my sermon today is Confidence, Having Confidence and Certainty in the Wisdom of God. Not in our own thinking, not in our own rationale, but having confidence and certainty in the wisdom of God, if we are to have that type of confidence and certainty, then we are going to have a confidence and certainty in the message of the gospel, that's verses 1 to 5. Then we're going to look next week, verses 6 to 13, confidence and certainty in God as the only source of wisdom, and we're going to end chapter 2 looking at confidence and certainty in the newly framed perspective that God gives us through his Holy Spirit. Now, if you didn't write all that down, don't worry, because we're only looking at one of these today. But I want us to read verses 1 to 5. As kind of a review, uh, John read starting at verse 26, because Paul's really continuing his, his, his thought. But we're going to start reading at verse 1, and follow along with me. Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that, and this is huge, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As you're reading, you, you, you will hear echoes of a verse in the Old Testament. And, and we're going we're gonna to say it together. But Paul here is echoing what has already been written. This isn't a confidence in, in, in himself by any means. That, you know what, I'm kind of, I, I'm kind of in, in uh, I, I know I don't quite measure up to worldly standards, but hey, I'm good to go. There's no confidence in, in itself. You hear echoes of what Paul is saying, specifically in verses 4 to 5, coming from Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. Just to give you some background, Zerubbabel, he was a Jewish guy. After the exile, you remember Cyrus said, you know what, any Israelite that wants to go back to Israel can go back. And they were allowed to start rebuilding the city and the temple. Well, then there were some, some guys from the kingdom of Babylon, and they started making trouble for Israel. They started giving false accusations um, um, to the king. And then they, they were made to stop. After years go by, um, uh, the prophets tell that the, the uh, Israelites, and, and specifically Zerubbabel, uh, was one of the leaders and says, you need 
to continue the work God has called you to do. Don't let the fear of man stop what I've called you to do. You need to start going back to the task of rebuilding the temple. And the prophets, the prophet Zechariah tells Zerubbabel, let's read this together. We'll skip the, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Let's read together the next part. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, if, God was, if Zerubbabel was going to be obedient to what God had called him to do, to lead in the face of opposition, it wouldn't but be by his own might or by his own power, but in the, the power of God's Spirit. And folks, if we're going to be the Christians that God has called us to be, if we're going to be the lights that God has called us to be in our community, it's not going to be by our own might. It's not going to be by our own power. It's not going to be by our own wisdom. It's going to be by the power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit to work. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at. So as we look at the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God, can I ask you today, is your confidence and certainty focused on yourself or your lack of confidence and certainty, focused because you are looking within, or is it focused on your God? Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts. Father, there's a lot of things in this world, and there's even a lot of kind of Christianese uh, statements and philosophies that we come across that have an appearance of wisdom. But Lord, it doesn't deliver. Lots of promises, but little delivery. God, I pray that we would be sourced in you the true power giver. Lord, I pray that we would be sourced in you, the one who has declared your salvation plan and your promise that all will be made right. And Lord, you simply call us to follow you in humble obedience. And I pray, Lord, that as individuals and as a church, we would do that. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 to 5, the only, we're just going to look at five verses this morning. If we are going to have confidence and certainty in the wisdom of God, we have to have confidence and certainty in the message of the gospel. Man, if we don't have our confidence in the message of the gospel, how in the world do we expect to be his witnesses. If we think that, well, the message of the gospel, boy, that was okay to save me, but that's not enough to sustain me, where are we going to be in our Christian life? I, I would say that none of us say with, uh, would say out loud, yeah, the, uh, the, the message of the gospel saved me, but it's not enough for, to sustain me each and every day through the good times and the bad. We wouldn't say that, but I think we live like that. 
Don't you think that? When you look at your own heart? How can we have a certainty in the message of the gospel? I want to just give you two main ideas, and we're going to see how Paul applied these things. If we're going to have a certainty in the message of the gospel, you know what we need to do first of all? Keep the main thing the main thing. Wow, that sounded like rocket science, right? Listen, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. You know what the worst thing that happens to restaurants is? I like to go to restaurants. My, my like is, is greater than my budget, so um, I don't go as much as I would like, but which would be maybe every day, I don't know. Well, although Rachel's a great cook. I, <laughs> foot in mouth. <laughs> Going off script and always gets you in trouble. You know the worst thing that, that happens in a restaurant? When you start trying to add too much to what your focus is. Hey, maybe more people would come if we offer this. Maybe more people would come if we offer this. Hey, maybe we should offer this. And before you know it, you wind up losing focus. Same thing in a business. Same thing in your life. And your family priorities. You know the worst thing that can happen to a church? When a church starts trying to appeal to this and appeal to that and do this. And this is a good idea. Let's do this. And before you know it, you're doing so much, you've lost the main thing of what you're called to do. Paul's focus was keeping the main thing the main thing. His desire was to keep his eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Who was it that saved us? It's Jesus. Who is it that promises to sustain us? It's Jesus. Who says, follow me, like we talked about uh, 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 at Easter? It's Jesus. So why would we start to lose focus of our Savior? If we lose focus of our Savior, we're going to be losing focus of the main thing. How does this apply to the text of chapter 2 and what Paul experienced? Well, uh, look at verse 1. We first of all see Paul's desire was not to impress. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God or the witness of God with lofty speech, fancy speech, or wisdom. You see, Paul could have lost sight of the main thing by focusing on himself and on what he felt would truly appeal to these Corinthians. You see, Paul wanted to see lives changed. He did not want to receive recognition. Paul wanted to focus on the content of his message, not focus on the appeal of his style. When I came to you. Now, I want to read you two quick, uh, uh, just two quick readings that, that kind of give us a historical background. 
to why Paul's approach was so different than the appeal of, of culture. Because our approach as Christians, it has to be so different than the focal point of what this world says is wise and successful. Just listen along. One person writes this. In the ancient world, a public speaker's initial visit to a city was critical to establishing their reputation. Orators would compete for applause and offer entertainment to diners in between courses at the best banquets. Competitive showmanship was the order of the day. So in other words, when, someone, when an orator or a person of wisdom, someone who is great with speech, would come to a new town in order to, to establish his reputation, he would seek to impress the people with the fanciest of words, with the most persuasion he could muster. He would go to really entertain the people. I want to read you another, another uh, statement to give even some more explanation. Speaking of verses 1 to 5, um, uh, this individual says, to understand this paragraph, it's helpful to understand the historical and cultural context of the Greco-Roman world at that time. In many cultures today, people who excel at rhetoric, which is basically fancy speech, or, or are not nearly as popular as movie stars, or the most successful music artists, or athletic superstars who play football or basketball. But in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, people who excelled at rhetoric or f and philosophy, they were the ones who were popular. They were called sophists. And that's a word where we get wisdom from. Debating others and giving flashy speeches was both a science and an art. A polished skill that required sharp wit, deep knowledge, great logic, stylish use of words, fiery passion, whether the topic involved politics, law, religion, or business. The most successful people who, who were, uh, gave rhetoric or speech had devoted followers. They had loyal students who would pay handsomely in exchange for discipleship. The more convincing and moving was one's rhetoric or speech, the more paying students one would have. And the way one expressed oneself was at least as important as what one said. Style and substance both mattered greatly. These sophists or, or philosophers generally traveled around and gained followers who would pay them. And when a sophist or a, a speech person entered a city, he would typically display his abilities in order to gain social standing and attract students. But Paul knew that the Corinthians expected him to do so when he entered Corinth. But if Paul mimicked the flashy and persuasive 
rhetorical styles of the day, he would risk impressing people with his style rather than powerfully communicating the gospel message. That is why Paul emphasizes, when I came to you, it wasn't like these people you're tempted to follow. It wasn't entertainment. It wasn't something that just awed me because of of your your, uh, come across or how you put things together. Paul says, I know that if that was the main thing, I would lose focus of what is truly the main thing. And so would you. And Paul, let me remind you, is dealing with the problems of the church is wanting to mimic society and saying, I like Peter. I'm going to say he's my leader. He's my teacher. Oh, I like Paul. I'm going to follow him. Oh, I like Apollos. I'm going to follow him. Do you see how with that background, you see how culture is starting to infiltrate the church in their thinking? How much of the time is culture infiltrating our thinking? I want to hear what comes easy to me. I want to be entertained. I want to, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. How many people pick the church they want to go to based on the, uh, the, the, the music and, and how flashy things are? That is culture creeping into the church. And what we find is both individuals and churches start to lose sight of the main thing. You see, Paul's singular focus, his primary and only focus was the gospel. Lest we forget, and and as we continue to read here some of Paul's experiences and and what he's saying, how he came in to Corinth, don't forget that Paul, I I believe it's in the book of Philippians, he gives his, his background. He was trained under one of the most respected Pharisee rabbis. He was well respected in society, in the Jewish community, as a follower and a teacher to other Jews. So Paul is not simply saying, boy, I don't even know how to appeal to you through those cultural senses that appeals to those outside the church. Paul could have done that, but he chose not to. He proclaimed the testimony of God, which this testimony of God is his work of redemption of what he has done and uh, through Jesus in sending his son. And in verse 2 he says, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is, this is emphatic for Paul. Uh, literally, you could read, uh, uh, for I decided to not know anything. He didn't need to make it that descriptive, but he did. 
And, and, and what Paul's, say, Paul's not saying here, that he's simply being naive to other things. But he's saying that he purposed to have a focus that would not be distracted. He purposefully chose, he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when individuals within, uh, would say, well, what about this? Or what about that? Paul would say, no, let's turn our focus to what truly matters. What, how has God revealed himself in sending his son? What is the answer to our problem? It is Jesus. What did he do? How has God worked in time and history to bring about redemption to this world? And how do we live out that reality each and every day as Christians? That was his focal point. He decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, there's a lot of things today that can take our distraction. I mean, we each work busy jobs we, we have a lot of stuff on our plates. Many of you are parents. Uh, many of you are, are, are spouses. Uh, many of you have a lot going on. But even in busyness, we may not be able to give all the time and attention to the things of God and to, to being in Scripture during various seasons of our life as much as we would like. But I would dare say, if we're truly making it a priority, we can be in God's word. We can be people of prayer. We can be praying, God, would you put my focus this morning on the reality that Jesus is enough for me in my situations I am in and will face today. You see, many times we get caught up in the busyness and stressors of life and Satan loves to distract us with those things. And many times we throw up our hands and we say, well, you know what? I just don't have time to put into my spiritual life. And maybe it's more of a reality that you're not taking advantage of the opportunities God does give you, though they may not be as much or as great as you would like. Paul's singular focus was the gospel. He had decided to keep the main thing the main thing. Have you this morning decided that you are not going to get distracted by lesser things? Have you decided that Jesus and Jesus alone is going to be number one in your home? Yes, there's bills that need to be paid. Yes, there, there are things that need to be done. But man, if those things are, are losing our distraction on Jesus, then we need to prayerfully consider what needs to be rearranged. Have you decided? But not only must we keep the main thing the main thing, 
If we are going to have a confidence and certainty in the message of the gospel, we must seek to actively point others and point ourselves to Jesus as opposed to self. I can, I can preach all day long uh, that, hey, we need to have our focus on Jesus. Jesus isn't enough for your life. Jesus is enough for my life. But you know what my greatest temptation is? A saying it on a Sunday morning, that's the easy thing. It's actually living it out. It's actually uh, preaching to myself. Lord, would you help me point others to Jesus? And in my own mind, would I preach my need for Jesus to myself? I preach a lot of things to myself, so do you, 24-7. And I would dare say, left unchecked, most of those things are not biblical. Woe is me. Why is this happening? How do we fig- I figure this out? And, 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 and there has to be that conscience, conscious decision, I'm taking this to the Lord. And I'm leaving it there. And man, when I pick it up again, I'm going to leave it there. You see, we have to point to Jesus and not ourselves simply for this reality that we are not enough. Do you feel like you're enough? Paul emphasizes here his natural inability. Look at verse 3. And I was with you, opposed to Paul coming in a grand entrance. He was with you, he says, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Does that come across as like a powerful entrance? How many of you, be honest, Now, in my opinion, it's kind of gone downhill through the decades, but how many of you who are like my age or older used to like watching the 1980s wrestling with Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior and and, uh, what's the chainsaw guy's name? Uh, I I don't, British Bulldog. How many of you liked watching those wrestlers? A few honest people. Man, if you ever wanted to see an entrance, you watch the wrestling and that music starts and they come running down the aisle like a madman. I think a Hulk Hogan, he's like, his hair is flopping around. Or the ultimate warrior, he's like an Indian of paint and he comes running in. Boy, did they know how to make an entrance. Or you watch a basketball game. And whether, you know, it's high school, college, you know, the band starts playing and out comes the team. Or during the starting lineups, I mean, again, as a child of the 90s, um, the most inspiring introduction was the Chicago Bulls introduction for the starting lineup. You know, the lights, the, the arena would go black, and you hear that, like, that electronic theme song start going. The lights would be going, and now for your Chicago Bulls. How many of you, that inspired you? It's natural to want to make a grand entrance, and this is totally opposite of any of those things. Keep reading in verse 4, my speech and my message were not implausible. Uh, that, That simply means persuasive words of wisdom. Paul knew 
that if God was going to do a work in all of the cities that he traveled to to preach the gospel, it could not be dependent on himself. He could not say, hey, Corinth, I'm here. Hey, Ephesus, I'm here. Hey, Philippi, I'm here. Aren't you lucky? I'm here to save the day. How many times do we do that, though? Hey, kids, I'm here, like it or not. I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to change your ways, and I'm going to save your life. Or, hey, church, I'm here. Aren't you glad I'm here to bless you? Or, hey, spouse, listen to me. I've shared this, but it's been a while since I'm, on, I'm already in the doghouse. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, uh, Rachel was talking to me about something that was bothering her one time, and uh, I gave like a five-minute speech, and, and at the end of that speech, I was proud of myself. I thought that is, was really wise. I didn't even know how wise that was going to be till I got to the end of it. And I was like, now she's encouraged. And, and there was this long... It felt like two minutes. It was probably like 10 seconds. You know what her response was? Well, thank you, Pastor Pereira. (laughs) The wisdom, the confidence was based in self. Listen, we are in unable in and of ourselves to accomplish anything for God. We see in verses 3 and 4 Paul's natural inability. And you know what he was blessed with? You know what he was gifted with? Recognizing his inability. You know what one of the marks of true spiritual maturity is? Recognizing you are not all that. Recognizing your inability, recognizing that even your best things that you do in service for God and even sincerely are fraught with imperfection. That you need Jesus and his righteousness uh, so much that even your greatest works have sin in them. That nothing in and of ourselves can please God apart from the blessing of what Jesus has done perfectly for you. You know, it's because of Jesus' righteousness that just like a little four-year-old can paint a, uh, a picture and they think it's as great as the Mona Lisa and they give it to their parent and it really looks atrocious to be objective. But that means so much to you as a parent. Why? Because it is your child that has done it for you. And you accept it because that is your child, not because of how good it is. And that's the way it is with God and us. I mean, Paul could have knocked our socks off with everything that he knew and his experiences, and and, and if he really wanted to appeal that way, but he knew that that would be an empty appeal. That's not going to cause gospel transformation in the heart. We see how Paul describes his entrance. First of all, it was one of weakness. 
What type of weakness? He says, I was with you in weakness. I really think there's two parts to this. If you look at chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, he says he, he's being kind of sarcastic to the claims of the church. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Why? Because they didn't look mighty. Verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. That's how society looked at Paul. Man, if you were someone worthy to be followed, you would be coming in and people would be paying just to hear you. But here you, here you are, Paul. You don't even own a home. You're not making money off this stuff. You're going hungry sometimes. Doesn't that totally go in the face of that description I read you at the beginning? Can you get a deeper sense of, of why it was that people were so quick to criticize Paul? Because their eyes were set on something other than Jesus. And man, that's the same thing with us. And even churches, even our church, we can fall into the trap of becoming critical because our eyes are off of what really matters. He was in weakness in the eyes of culture in chapter and in chapter 1 verse 25 27 we see that the wisdom of God itself is weakness in the eyes of culture but it also says I was with you not only in weakness but in fear and much trembling. What was this fear? What was this trembling Paul's talking about? Different people um, give different explanations, but again, I really think that it's twofold. For instance, when, when Paul was in Corinth in Acts 18, he faced severe opposition. He faced um, hardship and, and physical beatings, uh, but it, uh, the Lord said to Paul, Acts 18, 9 through 11, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city, Corinth, who are my people. You see, Paul's weakness, his his vulnerable state to face persecution and oppression. He was human too. It made him fearful. But I think there's an even greater fear here that he feared the Lord his God and not in a bad way that made him like the guy that buried his talent. But he knew that he was given a stewardship by God and he would need to take that seriously. And if he veered off on these other tangents, he would not be a faithful steward. And the same is true for us. He was in fear and trembling, but God would encourage his heart. 
And then we see another description concerning his speech in verse 4. My speech and my message were not in persuasive or plausible words of wisdom. So Paul's message lacked human persuasiveness. I mean, is it really popular to say there's only one way to heaven in today's day and age? Is it really popular to say, you know what, I live for a different set of values than, than what you may live for? Because, man, Jesus has saved my soul. His speech was not held in high esteem. He wasn't using the, the lingo and the style of all these other people around him. But isn't that the case of God's people throughout the Bible? Remember Moses? He had, he had stammering speech. You remember Isaiah? He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. You remember Jeremiah? In Jeremiah, God calls him to be a prophet, and he says, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. You can't use me. But in each of those occurrences, God says, I will be the one to work through you. You will see the power of God, not because of yourself, but because of me. God only required faithfulness. Are we pointing people to Jesus or ourselves? Are we preaching to ourselves our need for Jesus? Or are we looking to ourselves and bolstering ourselves up? You see, Paul recognized his natural inability. But lastly, Paul also recognized God's divine ability. The end of verse five, at, verse, at the end of verse 4, he says, Man, when I came in, it was none of those things. But what was his entrance? Demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You see, Paul's assurance was, it is nothing of me that is going to do anything of substance and endurance it is God's spirit at work through his gospel message. And that is where God's power is found. And then verse 5, he says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, the message of the gospel, that we are dead in our sins, there is nothing that we could ever do of value or of merit to God. And that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived the perfect life we could never live. He was the perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And saving faith is recognizing the total inability of self and turning to a savior. And somehow along the way in our Christian life, we start to say, yeah, I realize I was unable to save myself, but guess what? Suddenly I have the power to live for myself. But yet the daily message of the gospel points us to fully rely on Christ and not anything else. Where is the power of God revealed? The power of God is revealed in the work 
of conversion, the work of salvation in an individual's life through the message of a crucified yet risen Messiah. And that seems bogus to this world. So as we close today, I want us to read Zechariah 4.6 once again. And I want us to think about who we have been depending on this past week, this past month, this past decade, your whole life. Let's read that middle part. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts.